from the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy, this is the Forgotten Coast Podcast. An insider's look at ground zero of climate change, a chance to preserve the voices of disappearing communities, and a conversation with those working to ensure their survival. I'm your host, Kate Lyon O'Neill, and today we're in Africatown, Alabama. The story of Africatown is one of the most intriguing histories of the Gulf South. The last slave ship to reach the United States, the Clotilde, made landfall in what is now Mobile in 1860 and was deliberately sank into the river only to be officially rediscovered in 2018. The young enslaved Africans aboard the ship were sold throughout the region, but after the Civil War, many of them returned to the Mobile area to establish a community and return to the culture and life they knew in their first homes. You might not think of Alabama as a coastal state, but one of the first areas settled by Europeans was Mobile, which is geographically a river delta that leads into a navigable bay. As we talk with Joe Womack in this episode, he separates out the history of Africatown into about 50-year intervals. So this first episode will focus on the years 1808 to 1910, and part two will be Africatown in the 20th and 21st centuries. So it'll be about the first hundred years in this episode. Joe himself is an incredible force in this community. I call him Major Joe throughout this. He's since retired. Joe is the leader of an organization called Chess in Africatown. I'm reading from their website, africatown-chess.org. The C stands for clean stand keeping the community well-maintained and manicured. H stands for healthy, ensuring that a community surrounded by heavy industry is monitored on a regular basis, as well as improving Africatown status as a food desert. E stands for educated, that shouldn't be failing schools or failing communities, and that there's not a park for children to play in. S stands for safe, reducing crime, black-on-black crime, police brutality, domestic violence, and drugs. And S stands for sustainable, everything done to help the community being done to last forever. The schools, the welcome centers, the parks should all be developed in a way that lasts for years. Um, he's been really instrumental as a history keeper, and we'll hear in the second episode a little bit more about how he got involved and how he started hearing these stories of Africa Town and advocating for it. It was amazing that I got to speak with him. Um, his audio... It should be pretty good. We had to record over Zoom because at the time I was traveling, the Delta variant of COVID was really bad in Alabama, and he works closely with elders in the community and wanted to keep them safe. To understand Africa Town in its founding years, you have to know both the Mayer family and Kazula, also known as Cujo Lewis. You won't hear from the Mayers in this show. They have refused to speak about Africa Town or its history for decades. Despite the fact that it was their involvement, their heartless idle bet and desire for cheaper enslaved people that created Africatown at all. Kasula was 19 when he was captured and sold into the slave trade, transported first to Dahomey and then to Mobile. 
He was interviewed by several people near the end of his life, including Zora Neale Hurston in 1927 for her graduate studies in anthropology. He was one of the last African-born slaves in the United States, and by far the best documented. We have video recordings, folk tales, and transcripts of his life and experiences. The voyage of the Clotilde, that last slave ship, was documented by the captain as well as other contemporaneous sources. Here's Major Joe to set the scene in the early 1800s. In 1808, of course, this country said that uh, they, they banned the slave trade from, from the transatlantic, bringing people across the Atlantic uh, for slavery. Uh, now, the slave trade was still going on in the rest of the world, but it just wasn't going on here uh, in, in the United States. They banned it. But uh, just like most laws, when they implemented, people were still breaking the law. It didn't, it didn't have much consequence. And, and the slave trade was big business because, you know, some of these big old slave ships bring over four, 600 slaves at a time, enslaved people at a time. And uh, and they pay about $100 and they sold anywhere from from a thousand to fifteen hundred dollars a piece, so it was big business, and so they were still doing it. So, and you would have some people that would die. Now that was one ship where that sank and everybody died, and uh, so the government came back and said, "Look, we're serious about this thing." In eighteen ten, and said, "Now we catch y'all bringing slaves over and slave people over from uh, from Africa. We're gonna bring it." the trial, and, and if some people died on the way over, we're going to hang you on it. We're going to find you guilty of murder. And so so that was nothing else recorded on any books about any slave trade uh, going on. You know, they may have been some bootleg slave, you know, but that was nothing officially recorded after 1810. But, but as this country began to sort of divide itself, because you know slavery was still going on inside of the country. People would had a you had some plantation that just bred people here in the south in Mobile. Um, on the weekends, you had uh, people that would go down to the riverboat and gamble, similar to how they do now. You know, they go down to the uh, to the boat in Mississippi or elsewhere in New Orleans, and they gamble. And 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 the largest landowner in Mobile County was a man named Timothy Mayer, the Mayer family. They, they own a lot of land. They own shipbuilding. They had their uh, enslaved people that, that, that worked for nothing. Uh, a lot of people say they, they they purchased their land right after the Louisiana trade, you know, Louisiana purchase, which means they paid little or nothing for it. And then they and they owned Mobile before Mobile became Mobile. So so they, they were very powerful and uh, big landowners. And, and 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 this northerner, uh, and they were talking about the slave and and, and and the slave trade. So 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 Mayor said, I bet you I can bring a boatload of slaves over here, right on the federal roads, and they'll never catch me. So the guy said, Well, no, you can't. He said, Yes, I can. I said, Well, how much you bet? And he said, I bet you a hundred thousand dollars. Now, if you put that in your uh, computer. $100,000 back then is worth about $2.5 million today. And so they they shook hands pretty much and the bet was on. Now, Mel got his two brothers together and some business partners, and they put up some more money, about 50000 to make sure that they do the right thing to win the bet. Now, they went out, the best sea captain on the Gulf Coast was a guy named William Forrest out of Mississippi. So they hired him. Now, he, he already had a boat. 
but it was a cargo boat, something small. So so Mayor bought that and he took it down to his shipbuilding company and 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 they re-outfitted, redid it, and and made it look like a a pleasure boat. But it's big enough to hold uh about a hundred people, and that was the bet they had to bring back a, a hundred uh enslaved people. So Mayor got got his crew together. This thing was was very uh sort of sort of hush hush. And they, they re-outfitted it and made it uh, made it made it fast, made it faster, because they knew they may have to outrun the feds that time. And they did at one point. And so he got his crew together. So including him, there was 12 of them. And this thing was so hush hush, he didn't really tell tell them what they were gonna go. Some some of the men were his regular people and they trusted him. So they set sail. And when they got halfway out there, they he stopped the boat and said, Look here, we're going out here and we're gonna get some uh, uh, we're going to get some enslaved people from Africa. And they said, what? He said, wait, wait a minute. You, you can't do that. This is illegal. He said, he said, uh, he said, uh, I know, but, uh, uh, uh you know, th that's what we're going to go get. They said, no, no, we're not going to jail for you guys. You turn this thing around we go back. And so he said, look here, I know mayor and I know what he said he's going to pay you. But if y'all do this, I'll make sure he double your pay. They said, you can do this? He said, yeah, I said, let's go. So they went off to Africa to, and landed in, in the uh, a place which is now called Benin. Back then it was called Dahomey. And it was named after, back then they were named the place after the strongest tribe in the area. And the strongest tribe back then was uh, the Dahomey tribe. And just like the Black Panther movie, their, their, uh, their guards for the chief was, was Amazon women. They did a lot of the fighting. The Dahomey people had taken Cujo Lewis as a prisoner and were holding him at a guardhouse called a barracoon. Because of a slight made by the chief of Lewis's tribe against the chief of the Dahomey, these female warriors were sent to attack his village. Kazula and other young adults were taken as prisoners and sold as slaves. Elders and children were murdered. And so they, they had gone out and had captured a bunch of tribes and they put, had put them in the... Uh, in the prison there to sell them to people coming looking for uh, looking for some slaves, and and so they landed in the home, and uh, they um, that was a the, the big chief name was Zealand, big chief Zealand. He he was somewhat of a crook himself, and and so and so uh, Captain Forster that night they sort of had a big party, and he he purchased a hundred and twenty five for hundred dollars a piece plus a bunch of supplies to take them back and so the next day as they were loading them of course they were loading the slaves first and then the supplies last they looked over the horizon and he saw zeely coming toward them and they said he said this sucker gonna come and get these people and and and, and run us off and keep the money so he told the crew he said look pull up your anchor let's go they said well, we don't have everything about you i don't care pull up the anchor and let's go so they pulled anchor and 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 they left. He had purchased 125, and they left with 110. So they left 15 on on deck on shore there, and all of the supplies. They have no more supplies. So the trip back coming back was tough. They ran out of food. They pretty much ran out of water. They ran into a hurricane, and these were pretty much young babies. The youngest one was two years old. The oldest one was 28, and all they did was cry. 
or they will was cry. And, and to stretch the water, they put vinegar in the, in the water to stretch it because that, you know, helped them keep you from catching the scurry because, you know, you're not nourished properly. And so, so it began to wear on the nerves of the crew. And so, so the crew actually mutinied against Foster. They said, uh, they took over and said, look here, next time we see land, you put them out and we're going back home. So Foster said, well, look here, if we put them off and go back home with nothing, he loses the bet and you won't get paid. Yeah, you're gonna have to tell your wife and kids that you've been gone five, almost six months and you ain't got no, nothing to show for it, nothing. He says, what you gonna do? He said, well, what, what can we do? He said, here's what we're gonna do. Instead of going back to America, we're gonna go to the, to the closest Caribbean island. We're gonna get some more supplies and then we're gonna head, head back to Mobile. They said, okay. So, so that's what they did. They, they went down to, to a Caribbean island and, and resupplied. Now, in the meantime, the feds had gotten the word that this bet was on. And they were actually stationed at, at Fed station on both sides of the mouth of Mobile River. And, and, and they knew about when they, they were going to come in, know exactly. And so, the, so they, they were going to catch them. Some kind of way, Foster got a word down, well, uh, a mayor got the word down to Foster that the feds had gotten wind of the, of, the, of the bet. And they were waiting on at the mouth of the Mobile River. So they changed the plan. Uh, the plan was now, when you hit the mouth of the Mobile River, make sure it's good and dark. Don't do it in the daytime. Make sure it's good and dark. And you come on up the Mobile River, go up to 12 Mile Island, and we'll let, let them off on one of my ferry boats up at the, at the 12 Mile Island. So that, that's what they did. When they, when they came in the night of July the 8th, 1860, uh, some will say July the 9th, probably was the morning of July the uh, night, but but officially the night of July the eighth, in the dead of the night, they just they they just kept sail on up. It was it was uh, dark and they couldn't make them out. Plus they you know uh, they started looking for a big big uh, big sailboat, and they sailed on up to the uh, twelve mile island, and uh, and that's where they took the took the enslaved people off twelve mile island. And once they offloaded them, they took this almost brand new ship to the middle of uh, the Mobile Bay and uh, Mobile River and uh, burned it and sank it. So, so they, so they uh, destroyed the evidence. So the feds began to look around for them. They hid them up there for, for about two weeks and uh, uh, to make sure that the fed was gone. Then they took them over to uh, the Dadden Plantation and uh, they divided them up and, 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 uh, there were some partners in this thing. And Foster took, took uh, 10. They sold some to a plantation up in Selma and then other, other people. But the male brothers took about 35 or 40 of them and brought them down uh, to Mobile, to their, uh, to their plantation, their land in, in, in Mobile. Now, I mentioned that there was 110 of them. One of them actually died on the way back. And as they was coming close to, to close to Mobile Bay, Mobile River, uh, uh, around Bayou Labatra Codium, uh, they saw land and, and one of the female enslaved person jumped over and, and, and then she never came back up. Now there's a rumor that she actually made it ashore. 
and she lives and she has some family members still living there. Go in, that's a rumor, I don't know. But uh, in, anyway, those are the only two that didn't make it. So out of that 110, 108 is what they actually came, came here with. So while what actually happened that night is shrouded in a good amount of secrecy, what seems to have happened is a second boat was sent, the enslaved people were moved onto this, then the Clotilda was sunk, so that evidence was gone. They couldn't say, oh, this was clearly a slave ship. There's, ev- I mean, if you've been on a ship for three months in a hold, uh, there's no hiding that, really. So then from there, they were moved off of this other ship, and... At one point, one of the mayors went back to his buddies, I imagine them all still in the smoky room playing cards, you know, and announced that that he had done it. Um, Somehow word did get out to the feds. Actually, in 1861, mayor and the captain of the ship were both in federal court for illegally bringing in enslaved people. However, the outbreak of the Civil War meant that that case was never prosecuted and mayor suffered no consequences for his actions. Like I said, they, they kept them up in the woods for two weeks, then they divided them and they brought back about 35 from them here on a mayor plantation. That was in 1860. And they moved them in with a group of tribe that was already there called the Moors, M-O-O-R-S. And they stayed with them about six or eight months, but they were right there on the Mobile River. And they didn't like the fact that when it rained, it flooded. And 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 plus plus they were sort of independent. They were different from everybody else. They meant they were just out the woods, you know. Um, that was in 1860. Five years later, Civil War ended, and all slaves were set free. So they really weren't slaves for very long. And so their mentality was different than somebody who had been enslaved for generations. And and so they wanted to go back home. Kasula talks about returning to the landing site and thinking that Mayer would send him back to Africa, would send the other formerly enslaved people back, but he didn't. And without the enormous amount of money that it would have cost for passage, they had to find something else. And so they went to, to, went to Mayer and asked him to go back home. He said, I can't take you home. Plus, they didn't have no money to, to pay for the passage back home. So they said, we'll make, we'll make our Africa right here in Mobile, in Alabama. And that's what they set out to do. So so, so after the Civil War, they, you know, they continued to work in the mills and stuff and they paid them a little money, about a dollar a day. And so they, they pooled their money and they began to buy land from, mayor, from the mill people. And after five years, they had accumulated enough property about five square miles. And so they ended up moving back to higher ground or, or plateau was the area they, they call Plateau. Now, even though they got here, they were butt naked and they couldn't speak any English. It, they acquired enough friends and stuff because they used to go to the church uh, down in Mobile, a uh, uh, Baptist church down there, they had some friends down there. They wanted their own land. Like I said, they, they, this was not part of the city of Mobile, it was part of the county, but not part of the city. So they actually incorporated it's five square miles, and, and, and they called it Africa Town. It was actually two sections which still exist, Plateau and Magazine Point. Plateau, like I told you, they had moved up on a higher ground plateau, and Magazine Point was where they initially uh, came with the other tribe, Magazine Point. 
but they called it and everybody called and referred to it as Africa Town. So they, so that was they, they got here in 1860. They're free in 1865 and 1870. They incorporate their own area. So one, it was the first place in this country of freed slave establishing their own township. And the only law they knew was a tribal law. They didn't know American law, so they set it up just like a tribe. They had a chief, a medicine man, and all that stuff. Just because the town had its freedom didn't mean that the mayors and the white community of Mobile welcomed this Africa town. In Barracoon, Kazula described the difficulty he and other black men faced in trying to exercise his right to vote. One of the mayors literally followed him around on a horse, racing the men to polling places to intimidate the poll watchers into denying them entry. Mayer was so bold as to claim that the men were foreigners, not Americans, to prevent them from voting. Let that sink in for a moment. The very man who bought these men from Africa, who was responsible for them even being in America in the first place, had the audacity to claim that they were foreigners, like Kasula and the other 107 enslaved people had come and overstayed a visa. It took an entire day to find a polling place that would accept them. And even then, they were forced to pay a poll tax of $1, which was a day's wages. They paid, and they kept that record of voting for the rest of their lives. And that's how they, that's how they ruled it, with tribal law. In 1872, they built a church right there on the side of where they were living, uh, and eventually evolved the Union Baptist Church, which is still there today. In, in 1880, uh, because what they were doing was so successful, other free people began to move back down this area and, and find work and, and, and buy their own land. They had children, so they started a school in the church in 1880. That was in 1880. And, and so the community began to grow and, and grow. And in 1900, the, uh, the elders petitioned the Mobile County School System at, at the time to, to build a school out there. A public school be part of the public school system, and and so, and and so um, uh, uh, they didn't do it at that particular time, but they eventually did build. It. They said, "Well, you know, where are you going to build it?" So, so you had two families, the Giles and the uh, Green family, that actually gave away land to the Mobile Public School System that they still own today, and they built a school that eventually evolved to the Mobile County Training School. Now that school was certified by the state of Alabama as an official public school in 1910. thus making our school, Mobile County Training School, the first training school in the state of Alabama. Now training school was your training was just a simple word, a code word for black. But we had Mobile County High School where the whites went, we had Mobile County Training School where the blacks went. And so that, that was the only public school in the entire county and so, and so because of that, people began to, you know, sort of still move into the area. And, and um, now in 1915, the, the school burned down uh, along with some houses in, in the community. And the elders had heard about the program that established by Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenwald, in which Booker T. Washington and Rosenwald collaborated to build over 5,300 schools throughout the Southeast to educate free Blacks and their descendants. Uh, Julius Rosenwald was the first CEO of Seals and Robot. He actually built, you know, made it what, it what it eventually became. 
And because Booker D. Washington was this great educator, black man from Tuskegee. And, and so when the school burned down, they people here went to him for some money to help rebuild it. And, and they gave him some money. So our school is officially a Rosenwald school. So out of the 5,300 schools that they built, we could only find two that still remain. That's, they're both middle schools, Dunbar Middle School out of Arkansas, Little Rock, and Mobile County. And those are the only two that still remain. Others have been closed down or, or some type of museum or whatever. We have that history and that characteristic on our side. And the whole school was sort of uh, the key to the community growing and, and, and prospering and because everything was centered around the school. Yeah, yeah, that's that's one of the... Uh, one of the there are several folk, good folklores to go along with the community, and that's one of them. So the legend goes on the bell when they would bring them back on on the Clotilda uh, schooners or boats at the time had a bell, and 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 these was young young people as I mentioned, and so depending the bell would tell them about the weather basically. If the bell was ringing real fast, clang 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 clang, the seas were rough. Are they going to be getting rough? Especially, you know, you can hear the bells as they pick up, and so, so they they would sort of come together and get closer to sort of, uh, you know, for that confidence, uh, let them know everything's going to be all right. Especially with the young ones. But if the bell was not making any sound, sea was seas would come. There was no storm on the horizon. So, so even though they didn't speak English, uh, when he got off the boat. Some kind of way they knew that they were gonna scuttle that boat. And so so they reached back and said, the bell, the bell, the bell. So the captain actually gave them the bell. So they dragged that bell with them wherever they went. Eventually dragging it down there to the uh uh, uh Clotilda landing, uh where they were, and then eventually back up the plateau where they eventually settled. And when they found it and built that church, that was the first bell they had in that church. But 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 the uh, they've had several churches uh, since then, and uh, that that church burned down. Uh, the first one they rebuilt it, and that particular bell when they built the school, they moved the bell up to the school, and so they would ring the bell at in the morning, let everybody know the school was taken in, and they rang in the evening, let them know the school was about to take out. Okay, there's the bell. They've got it in a. Hmm, that's an interesting structure. I'm gonna go take a look. There's a little vegetable patch here. Some corn, some row crops right across from the school. And then here's the courtyard. Cement benches. So there's a brickwork circle surrounding the bell and it sits on a very fortified looking uh, concrete dome. I don't think anybody's gonna nab this bell. Looking around it, there's bricks with memorials on there. Some of the ones on the top mark classes. I can see class of 1951. And then there's donor bricks that sit underneath there. Sort of if it was a, a domed stadium. Imagine, I guess, the Superdome or the Coliseum. Um, that, that level of seating. That would be like the seats are made out of donor bricks. There's so many dragonflies and butterflies out today. 
I hope they ring that bell often. Africatown really distinguished itself as an exceptional place. A vibrant church life, a thriving school, a community that really looked out for each other, that preserved traditional folkways, religion, practices. An amazing community, separate from Mobile, a haven for other free Black people to come and live in community. In the next episode, we'll take a look at what happened in Africatown after about 1910. The development of industry, the changes that happened, and the tragedies that the community has faced. But also its revival, the discovery of the Clotilde, and what that's meant for the community. And also, Joe Womack's big plans for the Africatown Welcome Center. See you then. The Forgotten Coast podcast is a project of the Gulf Coast Center for Law and Policy in conjunction with the Red, Black, and Green New Deal and Gulf South for a Green New Deal. Special thanks this episode to Major Joe Womack for all of his expertise and an excellent interview partner. I'm Kate Lyon O'Neill. I recorded, edited, and hosted this episode. Music this episode was from Papita and Suffering Praying Hands.